This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's News, Today's Talk. 640 Toronto. Last night on uh, News Nation, I don't think we get News Nation on our uh, on our cable, so you got to seek these clips out. I saw the best explanation of the Middle East struggle right now I've seen, and I saw it from somebody that polarizes people, Mr. Chris Cuomo. Uh, he was on CNN for a long, long time. I'd watch his show. Sometimes I'd throw stuff at the screen and be like, that's ridiculous, Chris. You're overstating it. And sometimes like, he's right. And last night was one of the latter moments and not the former moments. He was talking about uh, Israel and he was talking about what's happening in universities here. I thought that was absolutely something that we need more people to say on our network news, on our network news about what's happening in universities here. But then I thought he made a great point about the Arab states that surround Israel. And there's a little bit of a call out. And I love the fact that we're having a nuanced, balanced discussion. And it's not all binary politics. You're on this side. Oh, I'm on this side. I don't think that works. I don't think that's reality either. Here's Chris Cuomo on News Nation last night. Imagine any campus allowing signs of ridding the world of black people or of gay people. That would never happen on a college campus, and that's a good thing. But not with Israel, even though Jewish people are only 2% of this country. Now, of course, Israel is unique, for better and worse. They are the little guy who is stronger than their enemies, or at least they have been in the past. So they are at once seen as David or Goliath, depending on your take. They're also seen by many, and this is controversial, but I do believe this is part of the equation. Many people who are protesting against Israel and Jewish people in America see Jewish people as just more white people. And as such, they are part of an empowered majority. So there is no fear of bigotry against them. I hadn't thought of that before. I spend my existence thinking nobody's going to be bigoted towards me or will they is my is the bigotry towards me, a white person and a white straight male, just the fact that I might be one of the bad ones, that I might be a bad guy, that I might hold unacceptable views. That's about it. I can't think of a slur you could throw at me that would really, really drive me crazy. But I'm conscious that that's not the case for other people and people from other uh, cultures and people who support other religions and people that aren't born with, I'll admit it, I'll admit it, an element of privilege like I may have been. I'm half Irish, half English. What are you going to tell me? Hey, your your ancestors uh, drank a lot? Okay, let's move along and get to the next thing. But Cuomo makes a very fascinating point as well about the Arab nations. Do you know Israel is bordered to the north by Lebanon? to the northeast by Syria, to the east and southeast by Jordan, to the southwest by Egypt, and to the west by the Mediterranean Sea. That's not a country. But he calls out Egypt, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon for not being in the mix here. Israel's really important to how the Palestinian people are treated and survive. And to me, me saying this, Greg Brady, not Chris Cuomo, they haven't always done their best. A lot of pressure, a lot of scrutiny over 75 years and the, uh, you know, a laser focus on the Middle East that will factor in. But I saw what Chris Cuomo said last night and it resonated with me. And if you want to see peace in the Middle East, countries besides Israel, besides Israel must bear some responsibility in bringing that about. Here's more of what he said. No Arab country has been welcoming to them. There is no burgeoning Jewish population in Syria or Egypt. 
they were chased out of most places. That's why there was a move to give them a homeland. Now, of course, Israel has a special connection to Palestine because they share territory and there's been a lot of aggression. But why have the Arab neighbors been so slow to help their brothers? Syria, Egypt, Iran, which as we know is pulling all the strings, right? The elephant in the room is Iran. What is going to be done about them? But all of these countries, including Iran, say no to refugees. Why? Perhaps it's because they don't want to help perceived efforts to remove Palestinians from their land. Or maybe they just don't want any more Palestinians. The Brotherhood breaks down pretty fast once it's not a simple matter of taking sides against Israel. Love or hate Chris Cuomo, he's right. And two things about that. He's done his homework, and that's real journalism. What he also gives you is data. Here's the top donors to the U.N. Relief and Works Agency for Palestine refugees in 2022. Do you think it's one of the Arab countries? Do you think it's Egypt? Do you think it's Jordan? No, no. Egypt's 48th. Jordan's 51st. Saudi Arabia, which snaps a finger and $27 million appear. Saudi Arabia gave $27 million for Palestine refugees in 2022 to the U.N. $27 million. You know what the United States gave? $344 million. They're first. Germany's second at $202 million. We have to ask these honest questions about this. These are really important points that have been ignored by a lot of news agencies and a lot of journalists who see this as a binary, this side or that side. It's spot on. And that's an important take on the Arab neighbors. And it needs to be given a wider conversation, a nuanced and fair conversation, but a wider conversation. Why don't these countries want to help the Palestinians more? It only seems to work when Palestine is fighting Israel. Only does. Let me bring this up from city council yesterday. Uh, There's a budget process going on for 2024. You know it. I know it. The city's in some financial uh, peril is the best way I can put it. And they have a $1.5 billion deficit. But I heard this yesterday from Olivia Chow. It's a quick clip. But the bottom line is Olivia Chow's answers for uh, solving the budget crisis in the city. She's done some good work. Make no mistake about it. She's asked the province for money. She's working closely with Doug Ford and she's pushing the federal government about money. But she's also going to ask you and me to help out with ideas when when we're paying her to have the ideas. Here's what she said. We want to ask Torontonians what matters to them. Okay, they're asking the public for ideas, public consultations on the budget. And consultations are fine, but usually how it works, and I want to get your reaction to this, is governing. As I understood it, and I've only ever lived in, in this, this continent and in democracies, you don't ask the public for the ideas. You come up with the ideas. And we then react and tell you what we think. Governing is give me a platform and then tell us whether and then we tell you as a politician whether or not we like it or not. We do this all the time with the provincial government and Doug Ford, the federal government and Justin Trudeau. You just heard um, Jimmy Kimmel make a joke about Joe Biden. Joe Biden doesn't go, hey, everybody, um, thanks for electing me. What do you think we should do? No, no, no. Your goal is to tell the people what you're going to do. And the goal of some of that is to do it during the campaign. And I watched, and I want to take calls on this after we break here, 416-870-6400. 
Maybe you want to defend Olivia Chow here. Maybe this is a good idea and you say, Greg, we'd elect a mayor, whether it's John Tory, David Miller, Rob Ford, and that person wouldn't listen to us. So here's someone who's saying they're going to listen. Maybe you defend it. And it's okay if you do. We can have that dis- we can have that civilized discourse about that. But what I'm asking is, do you listen to Mayor Chow and hear somebody who during the campaign, her biggest criticism among her rivals, Anthony Fury, Anna Bailao, Josh Matlow, Brad Bradford, Mark Saunders, was that she didn't have a lot of original ideas and she just coasted through the campaign as a front runner. I want to know what you hear when you hear that. She's asking the public for ideas. I, democracy and governing is the government comes up with the ideas and then we decide whether we like them or not. The last time I checked. And I'm not checking often enough, apparently. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. We averaged in the 70s, for example, 245 days of programming. Back in 2018 and also in 2021, we proposed to the Board of Governors of Exhibition Place that we lease the BLC full-time, year-round, long-term, and program it 365 days a year. That's a much better option I think both for the city uh, and for uh, exhibition place and for ourselves, we can easily program that, bring people on site, uh, have them enjoy a, a multitude of activities uh, and uh, and benefit both the city and ourselves. That's Daryl Brown, the CEO of the Canadian National Exhibition uh, from a couple days ago. I, I didn't think this was live. And frankly, I'm not sure it is. But some members of city council still have hopes that the Thermos Spa, the Ontario Place uh, Redux, will see the spa come across the street, across Lakeshore, not on the Bud Stage side, not on the waterfront side, and be on the CNE grounds. I don't see it, but that's an issue I want to get into amongst uh, a few others, including all that's going on and not going on at the TTC. And let's do that with Brad Brown for Brad Bradford, Toronto City Councilor. Thanks for uh, calling in and being up so early. I appreciate it. Well, when you got a two and a half year old and a four month old, you're always up uh, in the six o'clock hours. So good to be here well, with you, Greg. Well, we haven't booked the two and a half year old yet, but you know that's coming. We're gonna we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna have some conversations about the Bradford household. When you hear that from Daryl Brown, I mean, I, I, I swear, the last time we had Olivia Chow on the air, Brad, this felt like ah, we tried, but this is the province's decision. It's the province's land. It's what Therma the spa wants. They don't want to come across the street. They want to be on the waterfront. Do, do you see this as a living issue or a dead issue? Well, it's interesting because uh, presumably the mayor is having these type of discussions about our budget, about the capital pressures at the city of Toronto uh, and things like Ontario Place with the province right now. Um, you know, in the, in the mayoral campaign, I always said it's, it's Ontario Place, not Toronto Place. And is that, you know, the best location for it? Maybe, maybe not. But at the end of the day, it is their decision. So the mayor can choose to spend her political capital, uh, spend her time taking these meetings, listening to these positions, uh, or she can hammer out a deal at Queen's Park to help relieve some of the budget pressures that the city is facing. I think you hear that as well from Daryl Brown. I know we've had Don Boyle on, um, CEO there at Exhibition Place. They're busier than they've ever been. Like, I, I really hope people don't think the CNE is just, well, it's on a few weeks a year and you set up some rides and you got some soccer games at BMO and there's medieval times. It's a lot more than that. They're really busy at the Better Living uh, Center or an Entercare Center and they got the Honda, Honda Indy. There's too many things, I, I feel like, don't you? 
Well, there is a lot going on down there. And, you know, there, there's also big convention center lands. Um, you know, one of the really interest, interesting things to, to do would be look at the Metro Toronto Convention Center, which is, of course, on front. Look at the Enercan Convention Center. See if there is an opportunity uh, to do something. Combine those convention centers into one larger facility. I think you can do more programming on the X lands. And all of that should be considered in the context of Ontario. Place, But the idea of, you know, taking a, a plan uh, for the spa, for Therm, and uh, just sort of throwing that on the other side of the lakeshore, that's not how this stuff works. And again, we own the exhibition place lands. We don't own Ontario place lands. So is it a good use of our time, our energy, and the mayor's political capital to be spinning our wheels on something that the province doesn't really seem interested in negotiating on? I would suggest that's not the best use of our time. We should hammer out a new deal for Toronto. And that's where City Hall's administration's efforts should be right now. Brad Bradford's our guest on Toronto Today on 640 Toronto, Toronto City Councilor. Um, I wouldn't say you've watched um, a a lot of drama, melodrama as well, with the TTC since last Friday. You're not watching it from afar, um, but you're a lot closer than we are to the story. Um, what do What's fair comment about what was attempted in a meeting on Friday? We had Jamal Myers, the TTC chair, on on Monday, um, and he didn't say they had tried to fire Rick Leary, uh, the CEO, in that meeting, but he wouldn't comment on it when, when I asked if he was going to be placed on administrative leave. What should we know? Well, yeah, the, the chair's comments were very careful and very specific with the words that were used, and, and listeners need to read into that. Uh, yes, there wasn't a conversation about firing the CEO, but was there a conversation about unilaterally putting him on administrative leave, uh, asking him to step back? Um, we don't have answers to those questions. There's been lots of speculation, and this thing leaked like a sieve all over the media in the days leading up to this special board meeting. So I can tell you, I'm not on the TTC board, mm-hmm. but as a counselor, uh, as a TTC rider, as a Torontonian, I'm very concerned about the reports that there was a, an attempt to remove the CEO without any due process. And, you know, you listen to the feedback from, from Mayor Chow on this. She says she has had no idea that this was going on. She said it was news to her. And, you know, whether or not that's true, that's troubling, because if you're the mayor of the city and you have no idea that your handpicked appointed chair is trying to stage a coup, which is offside with the board to remove the CEO of one of the largest transit systems in North America, um, that is something that you need to be read on. And Um, if you don't know that that's going on, that's concerning. Brad, Toronto's got a housing crisis and an affordability crisis, but let's stay on the TTC. I don't think one person's going to ride the TTC or not ride it because, oh, um, Rick Leary's the CEO or, oh, I'm not sure whether the CEO is getting placed on administrative leave or not. But I bring it up to note we need more good stories about the TTC than bad stories right now. And I wonder if you think this just adds to a level of dysfunction surrounding it. Of course it does. And, you know, I appreciate that maybe we're down in the weeds on this secret board meeting and and what was going on there. But at the end of the day, what matters to people is safety on the TTC, service on the TTC, making sure that the, the customers can count on the TTC service and reliability. Well, that requires a lot of interaction between the board and the chair and the CEO. And if you're, if your chair is actively trying to 
undermine or remove the CEO, that compromises that working relationship. And I think people understand that uh, in any workplace, if you're offside mm-hmm. with your boss, uh, you're not going to get good outcomes. So that's why it matters for transit riders. Uh, we have we have a mayor and a TTC chair and the CEO of Toronto Transit Commission all on a different page right now, and that isn't going to be good news for safety, service, or reliability. That's why this is a big concern for me on a go-forward basis. We had two major meetings um, last night um, surrounding the, the very heartbreaking developments in the Middle East, and they're, they're just awful. We've all had our moments where we just sit down and we shake our heads about um, it all um, and a true lack of humanity. Um, Prime Minister Trudeau met last night with um, Palestinian representatives, family members of people trapped in Gaza. You were at a rally of your own last night. Where were you and, and what was the concept? Yeah, last night we were we were at the Beth Hasidic uh, Synagogue up in North York, and there were several thousand people there. And this was the Bring Them Home rally. And, um, you know, the posters of all 240 plus hostages were up that have been taken by Hamas. Um, we heard from family members. We heard from family members of the hostages. And I have to tell you, Greg, it was very emotional. I was sitting there in the pew trying to keep it together. Um, but it's hard when you are hearing from people who are directly impacted by the Hamas terrorist attack. And uh, the loss of civilian life is heartbreaking, but I don't see how uh, a path forward is going to be forged when there are 240 people being held against their will by the terrorist organization of Hamas in Gaza. And when you hear, when you hear from the families, I will tell you, it's, it's, it becomes more than just a number. We throw out the numbers of civilian casualties of the hostages, but when you hear the stories of the individual, um, the four-year-old son who was taken from his parents, his dad was shot outside, his body was burned. When you hear the 23-year-old uh, niece who was at the music festival and she had her arm and her leg savagely removed, yeah. her body was paraded through the streets, you know, I, I, everyone was breaking down. It was really upsetting, but you come together as a community because, as you've identified, Toronto um, has never felt less safe for the Jewish community. And I just want folks to know yeah. I'm standing shoulder to shoulder with you out there. And, uh, you know, we need to make sure that this city is safe for everybody. Yeah, we have to take the temperature down um, and find a way. And we got to we got to almost police ourselves uh, sometimes. Brad, I got to go time wise. Thanks so much for this this morning. We'll see you soon, my friend. Uh, Brad Bradford joining us. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Uh, Stephen Lecce is the Minister of Education. Um, I know um, we're talking about this uh, the school in North York this morning. I know there's very little you can say about it. It sounds like this is a Ministry of Labor investigation right now, but you've been made aware of the principles, node, and, and whatnot. This is all being handled by the Ministry of Labor in your government? Yeah, and I think, you know, the bottom line is kids and staff have to be safe when they're in school. Parents entrust us to do that. And I've called into the Ministry of Labor um, to do uh, all the due diligence required to provide that confidence to the community that the school is safe. 
Yeah, I know Minister, uh, Minister Piccini's handling it today. I want to get that out of the way and, and make sure people knew you were aware. And we've been covering it all morning long and, and trying to give parents uh, all the latest. Um, this is important, what you announced yesterday, mandatory Holocaust education. Stephen, it blew my mind. And, and, you know, there's so much that we juggle over the course of a day that one in three teens in Canada and the U.S. think the Holocaust was fabricated, exaggerated or unsure it actually happened. I was like, I'm devastated to hear that you're looking at bringing in curriculum that corrects that that flaw in, in the games here. It is devastating. Um, you know, we say never again as a society, we committed ourselves to ensure genocide and mass violations of 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 human rights would happen again from the 20th century to the 21st century. And I think, you know, if we don't learn our history, we are doomed to repeat it. And I think for many people in our society, in our country, we're seeing the repeat uh, of vile hate, anti-Semitic hate, and other forms of hate. So this is necessary. It is a sad, it's sad, that's sad, but I'll tell you this, we are not going to be bystanders as Ontarians. We have to lean into Canadian values, of democracy, freedom, the rule of law, I believe concepts that unite us. And I think the way by which the greatest weapon against division and hate is education. And I think civic education is key. And that's why the expansion of Holocaust education in high school, in addition to the new mandatory learning we introduced in elementary school this year, you know, in grade six, age appropriate knowledge plus grade 10, I think it's going to go a long way to help combat hate. I think teachers, it's tricky to talk the Middle East on the best of days. It's been really tricky to talk it in the last four weeks. So I know I heard from teachers and I think you should hear this. Um, There's a lot of teachers relieved that it's going to be part of the curriculum. Then they feel, Stephen, they're not coloring outside the lines and giving. Of course, we want our own teacher's perspective. There are mentors. But I think there's a lot of teachers relieved it'll be part of the curriculum. And it's not something they have to freelance, if you will. I think it's important that they have support because these are tough, sensitive topics. You're right, at the best of times, let alone now. I want these educators to feel confident in the knowledge. Um, You know, one Holocaust education educator said, if we don't do this right with the training and the supports and embedding it in the curriculum, it's possible some educators just out of a lack of confidence in the subject matter, they may gloss over it. We cannot allow that to happen. So we announced significant training of the educators and strengthening of the curriculum. Uh, the vision for me is to lead in the country, and we led by introducing the first Holocaust mandate in elementary schools in Canada, mm. and we've been lobbying other provinces, and I'm proud that BC announced just two days ago they're going to do the same thing in high schools. So we're trying to build a consensus around um, ensuring never again is the legacy we leave for future generations, and I'm just proud to be doing this. The Premier cares about it. We all care about it, Yeah, and it's it's important. We just have to do this. Like, if we want to defend democratic norms... This is how we do it. We stand up for our values through education, through civics, through Holocaust learning. Ontario Education Minister Stephen Lecce is our guest on 640 Toronto. One history teacher, uh, she listens to the show and she reached out and said, why can't this start next year? But I'm sure there's a protocol, there's training. Why will it not start till 25? Yeah, so we introduced the elementary education this September, so that's critical. Uh, I like that educator's thinking, the sooner the better. The Mm -hmm. the challenge we have is for many of uh, his or her peers, the teacher they want time to learn the material. One of the feedback we've heard in the past is, look, these are tough subject matter and they want more capacity, time to build capacity. So yeah. we've accepted that advice um, and therefore we'll have it ready by September 25. But keep in mind, the elementary curriculum, we did that in a year and introduced it this September. We're the only province to have that. So that educator, I appreciate the uh, eagerness here and I w- welcome that. 
and we're on it. We're moving quickly to get this done and give the training the support they need to help combat uh, a historic scourge. And I think one of the big issues we're seeing today is the rise of denialism. Denialism, people denying that Holocaust happened, the genocide happened, and that's a worrying trend. So I'm just proud that we're taking action, we're confronting it head on, and we're using education as the vehicle by which we could help expand those values that I think I want to believe unite us as Canadians. I know you hear from boards, superintendents. I know you even hear from individual teachers, Stephen, about violence. We hear it all the time on our show. Principals and teachers that feel powerless to break up scraps or to discipline. And we're talking probably at the high school level. It's a different story in grade two and three. We've all been there. How do Mm -hmm. we break that chain? How do we empower principals and teachers to, to stop fights, to discipline, to suspend? A lot of people don't feel they can do that right now. How do we fix it? Well, I think first off is we need school boards to better embrace and work with law enforcement. I mean, many of them have taken a very, um, uh, taken what I would submit to be a Mm -hmm. position that is contrary to the safety of children by denying civilian officers working within their schools. I mean, this is an issue for trafficking, for bullying. This is an issue for drugs and violence. It's an issue of the safety and the welfare of a child. The first principles we have to work with work against local law enforcement and some school boards have not accepted that premise the second is we need to continue to provide more staffing and this year we hired 2,000 additional educators and 3,200 more eas to work with kids that may have uh, behavioral challenges mm. the other element is mental health we can't decouple this a lot of kids are facing post-pandemic challenges still and many of them had issues yeah. even before so the mental health issue is a priority We've increased the funding in mental health, and the stat seems sort of, it's, it's, it's an impressive stat, but it speaks to the yeah. need to 550% increase in funding. And this September, we introduced mandatory learning on mental health, a mental health yeah. toolkit of practical knowledge that was produced by School Mental Health Ontario and Sick Kids. It's a wonderful product that is, will help kids uh, build the skills of resilience mm. to deal with stress, pressure, et cetera. So, mental health, staffing, education, and of course, training of teachers. I think all of that, plus the support of law enforcement, it's going to help. And I always say this, fundamentally, we need families to to continue to play an important role. You know, values, they they start at home fundamentally. Schools help to emphasize those values. So if we work together, I think we could help reduce the threat, uh, the risk of safety um, for both the the kids and the staff too. I think everybody can be universal and everybody can be in the same boat. We both got to go. Thanks for the time today. And I know we'll talk soon. Appreciate the time. Thanks, Greg. Have a good day. Stephen Lecce, Minister of Education. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. We told you earlier about a story, um, that we're working on this morning, uh, regarding um, a school and um, and concerns at the school about safety. The principal sent a note home at uh, William Lyon McKenzie Collegiate Institute yesterday, noting 18 staff members uh, decided to begin a work refusal process, which is their right via uh, their union. And the safety concerns are about radiation exposure of all things, from a nearby cell phone tower. The, the principal signed the note, sent it home to all the parents. Nigel was listening, uh, picked up the phone, texted us, uh, and is on with us now. Nigel, first of all, thanks for listening. Thanks for responding. And it just gives us good context here to find out what's going on. I appreciate you doing this. No problem. My pleasure. So you, um, your son's there at that? You have a son at the school? Just the one one boy? Yes, uh, he's in grade 11. So when you got the note, um, it's an email just to your email box yesterday during the daytime? Uh, actually, what happened was he got home from uh, school and he said that um, two of his teachers, uh, 
were protesting and that basically he had no class. So he just hung out and played basketball in the gym all day long. And he said they were pro protesting something about uh, uh, potential cancer risk. And uh, later on, around 6.30, the school sent out uh, a mass email to everybody. I was reading it. I was shocked to find out there were 18 teachers. How, how prominent is the cell phone tower? The principal notes it's attached to the school. Is it is it like right in the schoolyard? You know what, Greg, to tell you the truth, I've never seen a cell phone cell phone tower there. I'm not aware where it is, so next yeah. time I drop them off, I often drop them off in the mornings because he has uh, lots of sports. I would look for the tower, but I know that that area, I drove by that area for about 20 years on my way to work, and uh, every time I was in that area, there was no cell phone coverage in a lot of that area. And his own cell phone, a lot of times, has no coverage. I don't understand uh, that there's a cell phone tower there, so I'll have to check it out, but you know. Does the note worry you as a parent? Uh, yes, it does, because um, we had parent-teacher night a couple of weeks ago, and his phys ed teacher was not there. My son said that he's been away for about what would be about seven weeks now, and nobody seems to know why he's away. And it is troubling because um, at his previous schools, we had a teacher who was away who ended up passing away of cancer, a um, uh, principal who also passed away of cancer. So... It is starting to trouble me now that I'm thinking about it. Yeah, and I, I don't obviously I don't I don't mean to make the morning uh, more painful, but obviously you've got you probably want to get as much. We're doing our best here. Um, you want to get as much information as you can from the school. I'm sure a lot of people wrote the principal back, and they're like, "I'm sorry, what?" Because during COVID times, this was almost understandable that kids would be out of class. This is something entirely different. Right. It is. Uh, it is troubling, and I do want to hear ASAP what the findings are. Is he expecting, like, are, I don't know what kind of day you're expecting your grade 11 son to have today, like more basketball in the gym. He probably loves that, but that's not what he's there for, is it? No, exactly. He's a, well, he's a way a lot for uh, sports. Mm -hmm. um, so I, today he has to be there for 8 o'clock for something. So hopefully he won't be at the school. He'll be doing sports. And, uh, you know, hopefully we get answers as soon as possible as to exactly what is going on, what levels they're seeing and. I don't know what the solution is if they are actually having, um, you know, very high readings. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 hey, I appreciate Nigel, you coming on and, uh, and thanks for uh, your trust in us and for listening to the show. We'll keep you as posted as we can all day long right here on what's going on. So I thank you so much for listening. My pleasure. Have a good one. You bet. Um, so that's Nigel. His Just to reset, his kids at William Lyon McKenzie Collegiate Institute. That's in North York. It is a TDSB school. Son's in grade 11. I, I did not know that. He tells us the gym teacher's been off for seven weeks. Like, unless you're getting a, a you know, a, a knee surgery, unless you're on some kind of um, physical health leave, mental health leave, set, set, the school's been only on for nine weeks. Like, this is what, the ninth week of school for high school? If I do the math really quickly, um, it's a it's a concerning story. And there you hear a concerned parent right now uh, about it. Um, so we'll see if, if the school even finishes the day today and we'll keep you posted all day long on this story.